To Hell with the Hot Dish represents the opinions and musings of three not overly intelligent pastors working to challenge a church long defined by a cliché casserole culture. The thoughts expressed here are their own and not necessarily the thoughts of any larger institution. So feel free to find your seat, stow all expectations for answers in the overhead compartment, and join us on this misguided adventure. This is To Hell with the Hot Dish. Misguided adventure that we have affectionately titled To Hell with the Hot Dish. I am Alex out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Lauren out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Kyle out of Fort Worth, Texas. Still and always. Oh, there it is. Still, right. wait, wait a minute, Kyle. I, I have to take issue with this. Still and always? Well, always. He's not going anywhere, well, yeah. Lauren. It's where I'm, Here he stands. He can do no more. He can do no more. He he <laughs> does right. not migrate far. All no. all of your stereotypes about the state of Texas are true, people. That's uh, right. They're, they're all very, of them. Uh, he won't budge. I'll I'll own them all. We probably shouldn't make fun of Texas right now. We should probably be praying for the people of Houston. Yes, for yeah. sure. Right. Continued prayers. And Florida. And Florida. Yeah. So as we as we record this, yeah, the yesterday and today, Florida has been hit with uh with the hurricane and. Our thoughts and prayers certainly go out to everyone there that's that's been affected. How are things? What are you hearing, Kyle, in Fort Worth about the great city of Houston? Yeah, well, you know, we have a lot of friends around the state, and we're get, uh, doing coordinated relief, working with the Gulf Coast uh, Synod. And we just had a work day down there, what was kind of thrown together and people going down. And really, what's incredible is to see, you know, you see just the community helping each other. You also see the folks from Louisiana coming over, just feeling the uh, ways that we as neighbors helped out them once upon a time, and now they're coming to help out as well. And now the Lutheran churches are continuing to help each other out, coordinated efforts, trying to get relief to right where it needs to be. And so... Uh, it's just really neat to see these grassroots movements that are happening. Well, what's amazing, you know, in, in a tragedy like this is is when you see, you hear these stories like you're talking about, Kyle, of people that take time off work. You know, it, it costs them something. They, they take time off work. They use vacation mm-hmm. days if they have them to go and travel to go take care of other yep. people who are in yep. absolute crisis. We, we have a mm-hmm. member of our church that we're really proud of right now, Cheryl. If you're listening, Cheryl, Cheryl uh, just retired a school teacher many years in the school districts and uh, retired, has a lot of time on her hands right now. And uh, she said, how can I volunteer with the American Red Cross? So she went to training and she just yep. got deployed like two days ago. So she's yep. down there now with cool. the Red Cross. And and I just think any anytime someone um, – Someone loves that extravagantly to care for others is really we have to point mm-hmm. that out as the mm-hmm. church. That's been a lot of the stories out of Southwest Florida too. That's where my family lives, and we just had some 
some Florida refugees in Ohio who uh, fled the storm and my wife's uh, my, my mother-in-law and sister-in-law came. Oh, okay. um, but their stories were, were wild about how how uh, the community was really rallying around getting ready for the storm. Um, you think of like these runs on supplies and there were so many stories they were saying about people walking into store and realizing I'm looking for these type of batteries. I need this for this. And people who are like, oh, yeah, I, I bought some, but you can have your needs greater than mine. Here you go. And like this, like literally giving each other things. They said on the way to the drive at gas stations, seeing people buy each other gas, helping each other out, like as, as challenging as a lot of like the images are um, to hear the stories of, of support and care from within communities is just awesome. Like it's, it's, it's encouraging uh, recognizing how even in these challenging times, we're just, we're, we're capable of such care. Well, Um, and to see how we are, so much more uh, that that we can be one, right? In that moment, that yeah. we need to be that, that we stand that way, and that that is incredible, an incredible witness to the power of love. Well, and it's it's often you know through through tremendous tragedy and devastation that that the church wakes up to, to its true yeah. calling um, to to true. love God and to love one another, and I think it's fitting that. That we've been talking a little bit about this, about others that, that go and serve and 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 selflessly give of themselves. Uh, with the, with the episode we have lined up today for for the podcast, what's that, Lord? Well, um, behind behind the emerald curtain, we have a theologian. <laughs> behind, we, we have we have theologian <laughs> and author. We have John Armstrong with us, and uh, John is here today on the podcast to talk about many things, uh, one of one of which being his newest book, his 14th book that he has published. Yes, John! Yeah, wow. called uh, Costly Love. And uh, it's the way to true unity for all the followers of Jesus. And John makes the argument that it's embracing our call to costly love. So welcome to the podcast, John. We're really glad to Yay. have you here. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, guys. I've become a I've become a fan since July. I've been listening to your podcast. So, <laughs> oh no! <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> oh no! He's heard all the things we say. Just call me fanboy in Chicago. There you go. Nice. All right. Well, we'll take that. That'll be on our website. Look out, John. John Armstrong. He says I'm fanboy. In John Chicago. Armstrong approves of every word you've uh, ever said. No, I don't. I don't think you'd go that far. But <laughs> we um we're really grateful that you'd take time out of your day to to sit down with us and to talk about your latest book. Uh, costly love, but but also um, to just introduce you to our listeners that that are all over the country, all over the world. Many of whom I'm sure have heard about your work, your book in 2010. With 14 books, I mean they're bound to have heard. Yeah, of them, you you, know? you may have heard of John's uh, one of John's other books, um, Your Church Is Too Small, uh, published in 2010, uh, which was a great great book on uh, the call to ecum- um, ecumenical life together in the church. But again, honor to have you today, and I'd, I'd love to, if you would start off today, just kind of sharing a little bit about who you are, what you find yourself doing currently in life, other than writing books, and and kind of tell us a little bit about your journey. We love to hear with the different guests we've had on. We've had on authors and and artists, and we've had pastors on, and professors, and bishops, and we love to hear about their journey. So so we'll kind of hand it over to you, John. Who, who are you? Oh, who am I? Well, that's a... That's a good place to start. I I began life in 1949, so I'm a baby boomer. Uh, right. My dad got out of the service. He already had a son born when he was in the Army, and I was the second of two boys. I'm a native son of the South, uh, born and reared in Tennessee, spent some time in Alabama, 
at the University of Alabama, the number one football team oh, in the oh United States Don't even get of America. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Hey, it doesn't matter that we lost to Oklahoma. The Buckeyes will always be a superior program. Oh, well. Poor Lorne. Poor Just because you beat us a few years ago, that's not the final test. <laughs> no, I know. If you, if you lay the facts and the stats, you guys okay, okay, <laughs> okay. So we'll get serious. Two years at the University of Alabama, uh, with a, a wonderful experience in the late '60s. Those were very turbulent times. I um, imagine war, war mm-hmm. years, protest years. The culture was being flipped upside down, and uh, it was a great time to be at the University of Alabama because the school had just two years before I got there been integrated after Governor Wallace had done everything he could to stop it. So the civil rights movement was moving rapidly, and I was in the middle of it, uh, deeply impacted by it, and felt a very strong draw and pull towards the ministry of the gospel. Um, so I transferred to the Midwest to Wheaton College in suburban Chicago in 1969, finished two degrees at Wheaton, bachelor's and master's, ended up marrying a girl from Wheaton. 47 years later, we're still in the same area. Uh, pastored two Baptist churches, yes, Baptist mm-hmm. churches. And uh, during the latter years of my second pastoral ministry into my late 30s, early 40s, uh, began a, a, a renewal ministry for local pastors, area pastors. And uh, that was my first exposure to relationship with ministers from many different Christian traditions. Um, hmm. And then in 1992, uh, began a ministry for ministering to ministers and left the pastorate by faith, launched out into the, the work that we were to do, began to travel uh, and speak, men's conferences, churches, uh, pastors' gatherings, uh, preaching pulpit supply and churches all across the country, uh, many different denominations. But I think the most interesting part of the story is in those first years, out, as it were, on the road in the 90s, um, John 17, verse 21, when Jesus prayed for the unity of all who loved him and followed him, became a life-transforming, I won't even say verse, that sounds too pious. It was a, mm-hmm. it was a life-transforming idea. Uh, the Spirit used the, the, the words of Jesus' prayer to turn me inside out. And what, what God was saying to me was, you have spent the first part of your ministry dividing my church. I want you to spend the rest of your life uniting my people. The long and the short of that was that vision translated into action caused a ministry that had seven staff people and a half a million dollar budget to collapse. So between Mm -hmm. 1992 and the year 1999, we went up like a rocket and we went back down as fast as a finished rocket because of opposition to me expressing that vision. You say, well, why would people be so angry about a vision of Christian unity And in short, the reason was the constituents who are the first recipients of my message were mostly very conservative Presbyterians, very conservative Lutherans, uh, Bible Church, Baptists, uh, Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't, they just simply couldn't live at peace with my working among all the denominations, Protestant, my relationships that began to grow with Catholics, uh, all the way to the Vatican, to bishops around the country who are friends with the Orthodox, with the whole Christian church. So I'll finish with this. I've tried to keep myself on the one hand with one foot in the sort of evangelical world I came from, but clearly planted now a member of an ELCA church, a minister in the Reformed Church in America, 
another foot clearly planted in the Protestant world and very particularly in relationship with Catholics, bishops, cardinals. Uh, so the forward to this book, for example, is written by a Catholic cardinal and the publisher is a Catholic publisher. Two, th- oh, two, wow. things, two things that would have cool. never happened back in my 20s and 30s. So in a fast-paced sort of way, that no tells kidding. you how far the story has gone. John, I I love hearing that. I'd like to I'd like to hear a little bit more about that time of transition for you when when that verse was was working its way into your heart. Mm-hmm. What were you experiencing at that time in your life that opened you up to maybe there's a a new way, a new calling on my life, or maybe I've been I kind of heard a little bit in your story that that you felt convicted that you'd been doing something wrong up until that. That's point. that's what I was wondering. I'm like when you hear that thing like I've been dividing your church, what what brings that sort of really, I mean, challenging revelation or or experience, you know, that you could say, I think I've been dividing the church. What, yeah, what did that? Well, I mean, <laughs> truthfully, the Holy Spirit did it. And I don't mean that to sound like, oh, well, this guy's a fine Christian. He's oh, just no, no. giving the spirit. <laughs> because if I tell you, I'll tell you again, just part of the story, maybe this is a tease. It's not meant to be. <laughs> but but my last sermon on my last Sunday um, in 1992, I had been preaching through the Gospel of John, and I was in the upper room discourse, and I realized I'll never finish getting through this Gospel, but I can finish the end of the upper room discourse. So that landed me in chapter 17 at the end in the prayer for unity. Hmm. Um, so that last sermon, I felt like, boy, this sermon is for me. It may not be for anybody else, but God is speaking to the pastor of this church who's about to go out into a different ministry. Literally, guys, a week ago Sunday, I was at Gary United Methodist Church in Wheaton, and one of my former members back in 1992 is the choir master at Gary Methodist. And she heard me in the adult Sunday school class talking about costly love. And I said, I still don't know if anybody that day had their life changed, but I did. I w- the Spirit was preaching to me that I was the divider of the church and I was about to go out and do more harm to the church by what I was proposing proposing to do. And she came up to me with tears and she said, oh, no, 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 no. My life changed. I'd never be in this Methodist church if God hadn't spoken to me that Sunday. Wow. So I think there's probably more that happened than even I know to this day. But that that was a turning point. Then as I began to move out and uh, had the privilege to speak, for example, on Promise Keepers meetings, uh, speak in some of the largest mega churches in America. Uh, the first three or four years, I'm launched into this, I mean, numerically, financially, this explosive opportunity. And yet, three times in five years, I had specific dreams that I can only tell you I believe God chose to use that means to get my attention, that I was being unfaithful to the word of Christ and the prayer he had prayed for the church. And it, and it was so explicit and specific what he revealed to me. And then when I would get alone and pray and say, is this God or is this bad pizza I had last night? Which, 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 <laughs> which is it? Because I'm not into this, you know, revelation through dream stuff. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm really trying to figure this out. And I'm doing all of this figuring out in private because I was too afraid to tell a soul. They might call me a charismatic and I didn't, I didn't want to be that. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to be labeled anything. I wanted to avoid right. the label. So dreams, impressions, words, people that came into my life that spoke truth into my life and didn't know they were speaking directly to what God was doing in me. Hmm. It all began to line up over about a five-year period until in 1997, 98, I'm sitting in Philadelphia with a team, a bunch of guys, and we formed an alliance of very conservative, 
uh, sort of anti-Catholic, anti-Protestant mainline organization. And I'm one of the VPs of this organization hmm. and a founder. And I'm sitting there just inside saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. Th wow. This is not what. So I came home and for the first time told my wife, I can't do this. And she looks at me and says, what's going to happen to our money? And I said, we'll probably lose it all. Um, mm -hmm. and we, and we did, we basically lost it all. The, you know, God provided in ways that are amazing to keep us in our home, which we now own outright to provide food sometimes to let our now older teenage children and college age children see God's provision for us as we trusted him. Uh, but it was a wild, crazy world. I had never, ever had association with a Catholic priest, much less a bishop or a cardinal. I had never been in an ELCA church. I had never been in a United Methodist church. And now they're the churches that want me to come. <laughs> the churches, well, just wild. The churches that wanted me in the early '90s and back in the '80s don't invite most of. Ninety-nine percent of them don't invite me anywhere. There's one or two, one or two exceptions who've come along for the ride. And it was probably an unbelievable, unbelievable experience when you walked into that Catholic or Lutheran church for the first time. You didn't go up in flames. No, I didn't. No, no, no. And, and I didn't. And I didn't touch the hot dishes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. But what a what an incredible turn from kind of and, and I if I would just say it this kind of an ethic and a worry about a scarcity and maybe this is not going to be enough maybe there won't be enough maybe I I'm stepping out by myself to into a world of abundance a world that you maybe hadn't experienced and you were now coming into in a new way. This is the God's love is bigger than we could ever imagine in our own minds. And yet we continue to be afraid that it's not. Right? Yeah. 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 I, I, had, I had seen, I can honestly tell you that in my twenties and thirties, I had seen provision. I had mm -hmm. seen God provide for my family, for me, for my ministry and ways. I was a church planter right out of seminary. I mean, and these were the days when nobody left seminary and went out and their first call was to start a church with no people from dead scratch zero by yeah. going around a community. And the only other healthy church growing new in that community was an ELCA church where the pastor was doing the same thing I was. Mm. But I mean, this was way back in the day. This was in the early 70s. And now that became, of course, in the 90s, became a popular way for young men to start churches all over the country. Yeah. Um, so I came from that to an established church near the college that I had attended in Wheaton, Illinois, only to leave that after ministering for 10 years to local pastors, uh, then to, as I say, explode the first five years into orbit in terms of opportunities, but to have it all crash. But yes, God's provision to watch my wife, my son, my daughter, they're now, my son is 44, my daughter is 40, uh, to see their lives be shaped by this. And it was just simply, can we trust God with the most basic things? Will we have enough money to, to get through this month? When yeah. donors, when, I mean, I had three donors who were major heavy hitters and one was on my board and all three of them basically wrote me off, uh, told me mm. they'd never support me again. And I lost about 40% of our annual budget in one month. Um, wow. So you just, you know, and I never wanted to be the organizer or, or the head of any organization, but here I was in my mid 40s leading a major Christian organization that was collapsing. Looking back on that, what what do you think was so, you know, you voiced your your desire for this call to Christian unity, this call to work together. The, the, um, what do you think was so resistant in the hearts of others toward that? H have you Have you spent time really kind of reflecting on maybe what why others were were 
reacted in such a in such a real yeah. way. And not trying to be critical, but I'm sure you see like the real hurt or the real, you know, kind of ways we struggle with that unity. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And and, and, and I want to be I want to be quick to say that at least some, if not many of those who struggle with me, uh, remember, I understand what they're struggling with because I was where they were uh, before I made this transition. So if I have an ounce yeah. of mercy and compassion in me, I have to understand where they're coming from. So right. my answer to that question comes out of my own response, and that is... I think I was fearful, completely fearful that one, I would deny the truth and I didn't want to deny truth. And two, I might actually meet Christians in other traditions that I couldn't answer, couldn't understand and couldn't figure out. And I had been taught theology as a series of propositions and conclusions to questions that gave me a kind mm. of certitude that I knew what yeah. was true and what was Whoa. false, a yeah. whole a whole system of modernity, basically, that collapsed mm. in the process. Yeah. So my philosophical, theological, I'm still uh, theologically as orthodox as I ever was. But the way I hold to it, the way I confess it, and the way I address others who may see orthodoxy very differently than I do is entirely different than it was in those years. And fear was the dominant emotion. I was, And in fact, I had a reason on one level to be afraid. It did cost me. Um, but I do it again. I do it again for the freedom the freedom of conscience, the freedom of mind and heart to do what I knew I had to do. Yeah. So from that point, moving moving on, is this when you began writing? Did you begin writing? You know, you've you've authored now fourteen different books. Um, uh, walk us through a little bit of that journey of, okay. of how did you how did you channel that? Did, did did a lot of you know this journey get channeled into many of your books, or um, wh- where did your life and ministry go from this point moving on? Were you writing the books before all this happened? I've just no, I was well before the changes happened. Yes, in nineteen ninety two, yeah. when I left the pastorate. One of the reasons I left was that I wanted to write. Okay. I had many people telling me, pastors telling me, stay where you are, get another pastor to care for some of the things you can't do, and keep doing what you're doing. And the conclusion I came to, and no judgment on anyone else, was that was wrong to my congregation. They were paying me to be their pastor. Mm -hmm. I was loving being a pastor. I was a hands-on, real pastor, not a manager of, of systems. And I felt like it's not honest to receive pay to shepherd this congregation and spend half my time somewhere else. Mm. Um, so really the integrity of that struggle drove me out. So I did want to write, and I did start writing immediately. Interestingly, the first book that was published was in 1994. Uh, it was called Roman Catholicism, uh, Evangelical Leaders Analyze What Unites and Divides Us. It was published by Moody Press in Chicago, and it's and it's the best selling book I ever published. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is is that it was adopted in seminaries all over America right. uh, because of the contributors. Some of them were very famous theologians. Um, I wrote the preface, the first chapter, the last chapter, and uh, I'd say about half the book I still think is very good. The other half I'd like to dispose of. Um, <laughs> and so I have the rights to the book, and I'm going to keep some of the deceased authors that wrote the best stuff. And I'm going to repackage it and redo it in about 25 years from the time I did it, the next year or two, put some new stuff in it and reissue it with a different publisher and a different tone and spirit. Because Mm. my goal then was to actually interact with Catholic theology and where are we today with Catholics and evangelical Protestants and so forth. Uh, But it had that tone, that critical tone that was unaccepting and unwilling to to have the honest dialogue that we ought to have, uh, which came a few years later for me. 
Uh, so that was my first book and my best-selling book. It gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, I did other books, did several edited books. The other two books that have sold well are edited books. One is on the Eucharist, Four Views of the Lord's Supper, which I edited and wrote the first and last part. And the other one is Four Views of Baptism. And in both of them, we have Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, um, you know, type perspectives. And then the authors interact with each other. Cool. And I set the stage, begin nice. the book, end the book. And I always end those books with, look at all the stuff we agree on before we disagree. Uh, look at what we affirm in baptism. Look at what we say about Christ in our baptism. Look at how close we are to each other. Trying to use the actual disagreements to show that our unity is a lot closer than our disagreement without denying that we have some disagreements. But along the way, I've written other things. Uh, the most two most important books are the last two that Lauren mentioned, and that is Your Church is Too Small, which is about the future of the church being connected to mission and, and ecumenism. And then the most recent book, Costly Love, which really grows out of that, saying that the power of the spirit in costly love is what unites Christians, not agreement on all the doctrines. Hmm. Right. When did you begin writing Costly Love? When did uh, what, what were some of the motivations or, or what, what was God stirring in you to, to, to write this book in this time? Yeah, what was stirring in me was the desire to to speak to not just clergy or theologians, but every Christian who, who read, who, had a, who liked to read and think, what is it going to take for us to, to learn how to, to relate to one another in such a way that we can experience the unity that Christ prayed for? And the conclusion I came to was framed on four things in the New Testament. Uh, the first two are in the Shema that Jesus quotes when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And that is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, Secondly, to love your neighbors yourself. The third hook, as it were, was John 13, 34. Love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you, to me, seems to be the key to what makes that a third commandment. And then the fourth was Jesus' teaching on loving enemies. Love your enemies. And I call that the most difficult commandment. So these four commands, love God, love your neighbor, love one another as Christian believers, and love your enemies, became the framework. Now, to answer your question, I started writing five years ago. And I got so literally just lost in the mystery of divine love and realized that into my 60s, I had been lost and absorbed in propositions and theologizing and even in the Bible itself, which sounds crazy to some people, perhaps. You can get lost in the text of the Bible and lose the love of God. I did. And mm -hmm. I, realized, I realized that the word of God was first the divine logos, the living Christ. And I, I literally went back to my childhood and said, what, who is it I love? Not what is it I loved? Who did I love right. when, I, when I was a young child? And it was Jesus I love. Jesus I still love. It's Jesus I've given my life to. It's Jesus I will die for. It's Jesus I, I have resolved to follow wherever he leads me. I will go. So I got back to, as simple as it sounds, I got back to saying Jesus comes first. Not the scriptures. Not theology. Not my labels. Not by mm. being Reformed or Baptist or Lutheran, but Jesus. And so mm. that, that core identity, that core marker of Jesus, given to me, of course, in my baptism and in my walk with Christ in the church and in the sacraments and in life together. Uh, Bonhoeffer, by the way, became a, an immense, incredible hero to me, a way forward to understand the 20th century theologically, practically in terms of discipleship. So I got immersed. I got immersed, for example, in Soren Kierkegaard on love. And was shocked that a, a you know a, 
a philosopher, a Lutheran philosopher could capture my mind and heart the way Kierkegaard did. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went back and read Luther, Calvin, the other reformers. Then I went back and began to read all the Catholic mystics and the Orthodox mystics from Mount Athos and the early church fathers. And it was like this rich feast. And the reason it took me five years was I was feeding my own soul. And Mm -hmm. uh, I thought, I'll never finish this book. I'll never get it done. And then near the end of finishing it, I had open heart surgery last year and thought, well, probably I won't finish it. Somebody else will finish it or it won't be finished. And after that heart surgery, I resolved, I'm going to try to finish one more book at least. (laughs) And uh, it was finished. The foreword was uh, written by Cardinal Tobin of Newark, a Catholic cardinal. The book was published in July. And so it's, it's now available. Yeah. Wow. I, I, this story is good. Like, and it's funny how when I hear this, when you talk about putting Jesus first, I think there is so much in this in terms of uh, you were talking about this sort of like putting scriptures even before Jesus. And now some people might really just struggle with, well, how do you know Jesus without the scriptures? How do you do this? I'm like, if you look to like the example in the story of how he beyond just his words, the ways he did things, the ways he taught, Mm -hmm. it was all this, like it's this person centric. Yes. It's, it's Mm -hmm. so it's so, um, I mean, incarnate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He wants it to be for them. Everything just comes through so clearly. The the words of of, of the Lord's Supper. It's for you mm-hmm. to to feed you, to strengthen you, to bless you. And when I think about that, I'm like, the story isn't just limited to this this paper, this ink. He told stories. He taught lessons through parables. I we take parables and go. Oh, that's that's the only way to teach it. That's the only fair way to teach it. It's because Jesus did it that way. I'm like, he was teaching disciples how to tell stories about love and about forgiveness and about mercy. And then it's surprising and then it's challenging. And we limit it then to, okay, I'll repeat those words. I'm like, what? <laughs> Listen to the words. It's like this. We should so lean into this um, practice of our ways, our works and our words synthesizing information in an experience, really spend time saying, what is this like? What is God trying to say through this? Because I don't think God's quite literally talking about a mustard seed. A dandelion might be way more appropriate for someone from the Midwest (laughs) to say, it's like a dandelion. And it's like, well, it's not, it's like a mustard seed, Derek. It's like, no, it can't. That's not the point. It's not about a literal thing. (laughs) It's about telling the story of a love that takes root and surprises and overwhelms and transforms. And we go, I don't know if I like this or not, you know, like, you know, I, I was, I was, I was rethinking because of last week I led a dialogue with 15 Catholics and 15 Protestants at Mundelein Seminary here in Chicago, which is the Archdiocesan Catholic school. And uh, they come from all over the country, some outside the country. And we spent three days together and the bulk of our time was telling stories, listening to one another, eating together, drinking together. And I mean, at night, drinking together. and uh, <laughs> Sound like disciples. And, and yes. Yeah. And most, we had a couple of academic presentations that we interacted with, but the vast majority of what we did was personal storytelling and relationship building of trust. I'm convinced that we hear even theology better when we're in a relationship of yes. trust, not, mm-hmm. not just reading books, not just hearing content out of the preacher. Oh, we got a marvelous preacher. He can give us good, solid content. Well, I, information. Yeah, more information. Yeah. And, and so I was reflecting on the Jewish tradition and going back to some of the rabbis and, and understanding how they read the book of Genesis. 
And we have so messed, we have so messed this up. The book of Genesis was a book of stories. It's, 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 it's biographical stories of people of old and they didn't read text and analyze them. They heard stories and responded to them and they used their imagination. And that's how we ought to read Genesis. Yeah. Boy. Cannot I cannot agree with you more, oh, my dude. Yeah. Here I comes another plug. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is like been Lauren and I's obsession for months as we've been working on Bible besties, which we're it's like another podcast. this is how you tell Genesis is through stories, dang it. Like get close like you know the story, close the dang book and tell me the story yes. of God's love yeah. that surprises yeah. me. Yeah. 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 Well and I and I I, I just one other thing is I I so love what you're saying because when I do uh, Bible studies uh, where we just pick up the Bible and read it together, I have groups of twelve that I often do, and what happens un- undoubtedly is we read a little bit and somebody tells a story and yep. we we grow as disciples together because I learn something about them, they learn something about me, and suddenly the Bible comes alive in a way you cannot do when you sit and you're reading. It by yourself, locked in a room without any dialogue. That I would say the Holy Spirit infuses those moments, and I just think that is that. That's what you're talking about. That's what you're doing, and that's what you're living. And I'm saying thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and and just just to, just to add one more little piece, and that is, I am I decided years ago that when I reached age seventy, that the ministry that I've led the last twenty six years would come to a conclusion. Except mm. that a year ago, when our board met at Green Lake Conference Center in Wisconsin surprisingly, the Holy Spirit showed up and what he said to the board, not to me, but to the board of directors, 10 people, several Lutherans, several Catholics, they come from different denominations. They all said, this is what we believe is good for to the Holy Spirit. And it was to form an intentional covenanted community of people from many churches who will learn to share relationally the stories together around mm. meals and coffee and gatherings so that from the synergy of our storytelling and life together, we can pass it on to congregations and churches around the country. Yeah. We believe that the future of the church has to be in, in faithful biblical storytelling mm-hmm. that is poured through relationships to real people, whether it's one person across the table or a half a dozen. And they they deduce that not from reading my writings, but from watching me live this the last 25 years. And they said, what is it that John has lived? And they said, this is how he's lived. And then the next question was, can we do the same? And the answer was, yes, we can. Let's try to do it together. So Act 3 Network is becoming something called the initiative next year. And the mm-hmm. initiative is our mutual commitment to initiate transformation in the church by storytelling about how we live in unity together. Nice. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I love it. That's, that, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I want to read something from page 39 of your book. It says, no matter how we feel or what we think, we are called to love because God is love. We cannot even begin to fathom the mystery of this costly love without putting aside our preconceptions and cultural biases. If we are to become open to the love of Christ in us, then we must replace the sentimental greeting card kinds of love we've embraced in modern culture. We must put on a faith-based, Jesus-centered love. This love is at the center of the gospel. In the words of Bishop Robert Barron, cited in the introduction, this love is nothing less than the radicality of the gospel. God love requires us to live outside the box of our human ways of thinking and living. If we live in a radical gospel way, people will likely say of us what they said of Jesus. 
He has gone out of his mind. <laughs> I, I lift this quote up because so good because I think this this can pivot for us a little bit into what do you mean when you talk about costly love? Well, that quote in some ways gets at it, doesn't it? In that quote, I use the term God love. The hearer can't see that that's a hyphenated word in the text. Right. Ca- mm-hmm. Capital G-O-D hyphen, capital L-O-V-E. And the reason for that is textual. It goes back into the Greek word agape, which as many listeners will know is the choice of the apostles to describe the love of Jesus and the love they had for each other. And it's this unusual Greek word that was not important in the first century that they grabbed a hold of and used in their writing. And uh, what I'm trying to do is to say that divine love is not like any other kind of love. It's distinct in that it has its origin in the eternality of the Trinity, who has loved us, created us out of love, sustains us out of love, cares for us out of love, redeems us out of love, sees us safely home because of love. It's all rooted in love, the character of God who is love. So God love is God love. It is the love of the eternal God. It's not like any other kind of love. It is that love, that particular kind of love that he has put inside of us through our salvation. Now, that love cost the father, John 3, 16, his one and only son. His son had to be sacrificed, not to pay a debt per se, not to buy the father's favor. I think that thinking about the atonement is really askew. It's to demonstrate how deeply he loved us. That's John 3, mm-hmm. 16. The verse yeah, I learned yeah. as a little child, for God so loved the world, he gave. And what did he give? He gave his son the, at the greatest cost in a way beyond where we can explore even into the mystery of it. God loved the world that much. So it's costly love. Um, we wear crosses. We wear all kinds of jewelry and things that refer to the cross. I really wonder if early Christians would have worn a cross like that. I'm not opposed to it. I have crosses. I wear them in various contexts. But I really wonder, because the cross was such an offensive instrument of, of death, a death stake, sure. a, a place where criminals were put to death, that totally. God loved us that much, that the mystery of his sufferings to the drinking, as it were, the cup to the bottom, uh, all of that was the display of how far the love of God goes for unreconciled people to bring them home so that Paul can finally say to the Colossians, God has reconciled the whole world to himself and his son, Jesus Christ. That just passes over us. It doesn't, doesn't cause us as Christians to think, oh, wow. You know, it's rather, oh, yeah, okay. God loves us. Big deal. You know, I got it. Let's move on to something else. Yeah. I would say that when I heard that quote, I admittedly said, TLDR, too long, didn't read, to hell with the hot dish. <laughs> because we're over that, like, that. it turns into just a cliche expression. Yes, yes. As opposed to, I've, I've commented on that cross thing, too, sometimes when I talk to kids, I go, I mean, imagine if you wore an electric chair around your neck. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's an execution device right. that's been transformed into an image of that sort of unbelievably costly love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. By the way, it's a great it's a great moment of, of talking about Jesus to anybody who wears a cross or whatever. Just just say, hey, I like your cross. And if you have an opportunity, if you're seated or talking or in or play, say, do you know what? Do you know what the cross was? Do you know that? You, well, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, but you know what the cross was for the Romans that he died on? You know, it was a stake of execution. It was a horrible display of a of a person stripped naked and beaten, hanging there, so everybody could mock and spit on him and say, "What a crazy idiot, insane person that must be, a criminal." Yeah, that that's how much God loved that He actually His Son did that for you. Does that mean that? Does that cross? Does that you have any idea what that means? 
it's a, it's a, it's a great conversation piece. Just like when somebody says, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'll say, that's okay. I said, were you baptized? Oh yeah, I was actually as a child. I don't remember it, but I was baptized. I said, well, let me ask you a question. If you're not a Christian anymore, why don't you renounce that baptism? And they'll stop and they'll look at me and say, what are you? I say, I'm a minister. You're asking me to renounce. I'm saying, I'm saying either embrace your baptism and seek out what it means or just renounce it. Rarely does anyone say to me, oh, I've never thought about that. I think I'll renounce it. They usually <laughs> stop and say, oh, if somebody loved me enough to baptize me and the church cared for me, maybe I ought to do something about this baptism. <laughs> I love, have you ever heard that joke of that person calling their church home to say, I'd like to get my name taken out of that baptismal book? Yes. And yes. the church secretary goes, Oh, sorry. It's, they said forever. You can't undo it. <laughs> sorry. That's good. Like the words literally are marked, sealed forever. So yeah. tough luck. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many, there's so many avenues you can take with this, this meta narrative of love, costly love, the love of God, God being love, but also all, our call, as you said, one of the parts of your book to love one another and to love the world. And I think that's, that's a message the world desperately needs to hear right now. Um, you know, this is, uh, as we record, um, today it's the anniversary of 9/11. We're recording on mm-hmm. September 11th, and, yeah. and of course, you know our our minds and our hearts are with those on this particular day, with those in Florida and Texas with the with the hurricanes. But also, um, we remember a, a day of tragedy and and a day that that um, that led to led to war all over yes. the world. And yeah. um, and it, it seems impossible at times for us to love love our enemies, to love love those who hurt us, to love those we disagree with, um, those yeah. who vote for different political leaders, those who think mm-hmm. differently about the world or politics or policy. And it just seems it seems like we're more divided than ever. And mm-hmm. and here I think this this call to costly love to embracing the love of Jesus is is the answer. I think it's the only answer. But yet yeah. there are so many obstacles that get in the way for all of us. How do you think we embrace costly love on a daily basis? What, what are important things for someone who, who's listening to this episode and they're, they're convicted or they're inspired by what you're offering up? What do they need in their life to help them stay on, on track, to stay focused on the vision? Practically speaking. Yeah, pra- yeah. very practically. What, what has helped you over the years? Well, pra- practically, um, I think you begin. Uh, contemplative prayer has been huge for me. Uh, something I knew nothing about as an evangelical Protestant in my early years. Uh, contemplative prayer, quietly waiting before God at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, through mm. the day, stopping in the day. And what do I contemplate? The first thing I always contemplate is the eternality of the mystery of God's divine love. And I, I immerse myself, my mind, my heart, my soul in this contemplation, in this this being, this uh being that I can't even put propositions around that adequately define him, which we're always trying to do, who is the mystery of love. No matter what I do, he still loves me. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to buy it. This is, you know, good Lutherans. This is grace. Yeah. It, it is, it is, it is God's favor. It is God's grace. So I literally contemplate the beginning of the day. First, when I open my eyes right through the day, sequencing my day and saying, the Lord loves me. This is how much he loves me. My mind just kind of wanders over that. My heart engages with it. Um, then, of course, life happens. Stuff happens, right? Yeah. Some, You know, today I'm driving away and I put on the alarm system, left the house, and I turned on the wrong system. And my wife called me and said, did you turn it on? I said, yeah, I hit the wrong button. My dog might set it off and cause everybody to come roaring over to my house thinking somebody broke in. 
And for a moment, I just lost it. I said, I got to turn around and go home and reset the alarm system. And I wasn't too happy about it. And within about 10 seconds, I just kind of regained composure and said, okay, this is okay. God still loves me. I need to live in this love and embrace this moment and not get bent out of shape. So it is a, it is like a, a daily practice, mm. uh, a moment by moment practice. I think we as ministers especially need to teach our people the practice of how to do this. How do you live this spiritual journey? Uh, and a number of writers have helped, helped me do this. The late Henry Nowen, Thomas Merton mm. uh, as Catholics, uh, Richard Foster, uh, the late Dallas Willard, uh, evangelicals that have helped me, um, and all kinds of others. Luther helps me. Um, early church fathers have helped me. Mystics have helped me understand this mystical element of resting and living moment by moment in divine love. Hmm. Um, it's not it's not a mechanical form. It's not a card you carry around and ch- check off the six boxes every every hour. Uh, but it does involve discipline. I get into this in the book. You have to discipline your mind, discipline your life so that you live continually in God's love. It's not going to happen because you read my book. I wish it did, but it won't. Uh, the, book, the book might help you make progress there, but you're going to have to take initiative to say, I really want, want to live in this love. The other thing I'd say is if loving God is loving your neighbor, then it's relational. The yeah. only mm-hmm. way you can grow in the love of God yeah. is to be in the kinds of honest truth-bearing, face-to-face, incarnate relationships with other people where they can speak the truth, where they can hurt you, where they can wound you, and you have to respond to that. That's where love comes to the fore, and you have to make choices. How will I respond to this hurt? How will I respond to this person? Uh, Will I pray for them as Jesus told me to, even if they despitefully use me um, or they mistreat me? How How do I treat people who misuse me? In my case, some of my harshest enemies have been evangelical pastors who write books and use me as exhibit A to attack me and to say I'm Mm. a compromiser. How do you respond to that? You know, defend yourself, write books back against them and tell how awful they are because you know them, uh, or do do you choose to love them and keep reaching out? And I I can tell you guys today, there are several of my evangelical friends from 20 years ago who used me as a kind of a punching bag that today we're moving back towards relationship because love is winning rather than losing. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah. And I think our I think our tendency in in the world today is to isolate ourselves, you know, that 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 it's easy today to surround ourselves in an echo chamber of our own thoughts and our own beliefs. And yeah. um and I think we have to do intentional work about placing ourselves in the context of communities with people that think and act and vote and believe differently than we do. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and to not just have, you know, a nice shallow conversation when we see those people, but actually sit together, study the word together, um, come to worship together, have conversations that are deep and and meaningful. We can't love someone in a way that costs us something unless we're, we're willing to know who they truly are, their true selves. Mm -hmm. And you have Mm -hmm. to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to share. I love those three values. We lift those up all the time at, at my congregation of, uh, I lift them up with the youth, especially humility to listen to another vulnerability to share what you truly think and dignity to extend to another and to hold on for yourself. So humility, vulnerability, and dignity. And if we embodied that as the church, th- then we can have difficult conversations, but then we can right. truly yep. get to know one another. But, but we live in a world that's not humble, it's proud. 
We, we're often not vulnerable. We put walls up and we don't afford dignity to people because we'd rather slander them. But that's not right. the way of Jesus. Right. <laughs> and and, right. and that, that gets in the way of us fully embracing one another. Right. I, I, last, last week, I read a magnificent little book. It can be read in one sitting called Building a Bridge by Father James Martin, the famous Jesuit author. And the subtitle of his book is How the Catholic Church and the LGBT Community Can Enter into a Relationship, now here are the key words, of Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. Now, it's yeah. been interesting for me to watch Catholic bishops attack this book because they think he's trying to find a quote-unquote loophole in the moral uh, stance of the Catholic Church, which he has publicly said he's not trying to do at all. By the way, if our listeners don't know, Pope Francis is getting hammered by Catholics for saying some of the same things publicly. Um, (laughs) But let me assure you, the Catholic Church has not officially changed its moral stance on marriage. But what these guys are debating among themselves is whether or not they can show respect, compassion, and sensitivity for the other. The other who's different, the other who's a baptized person, but who walks in a different way than I walk. Mm -hmm. Can they restore those pastoral Jesus values to the church? This is a, this is an inter-Roman Catholic debate, but this book is for all of us. Regardless of your view of the issue of marriage, this is a book we all need to be sort of entering into this very spirit, Lauren, that you just said. And that's what Mm -hmm. costly love will do. And by the way, that's the part of this book that, again, people far left and far right, if I can use those terms for a moment, they don't get it because they want me to come down on the side. And and I try to leave them guessing. Uh, I have, I have, I have political views. I have social views. I have, I have views about morality and so forth. But those are not the things that define who I am, what I am, or how much God loves me, or how much I can love you. Yeah, right. I, I love the yeah. phrase that our our unity is not in our full agreement. Our unity is in our need for Jesus. That's right. Yeah. You know? That's right. That's we, right. We all That's we all right. need Jesus. How, how can people, John? How can people uh, find your book? Where can they find it? How can they learn more? about you and about your ministry? Well, the book can be found on, on most all of the internet sources. Uh, obviously, Amazon has it. The website, if you want to see a short video, 90-second video that I did on why I wrote the book, there's a really nice one at the website, costlylove.com. Okay. So there's a dedicated website, costlylove.com, with a video. It's got the table of contents, the forward, the first chapter, um, it's got a bunch of endorsements. I put up some videos, some radio interviews, uh, like this podcast. When we're done, I'll put it up there too. Everything that I do that touches on the book gets put on that website. So it's a really great aggregating site to go and get a feel for the book and decide whether you're interested in it. Then there are places that it'll tell you you can go to buy it. Um, if listeners want to buy 10 or more for use in a church or any uh, context, uh, they can contact me directly and I can get them the best discount shipped directly to them in quantities that they can use for group work. Great. But the single copy you want to buy, that's those normal resources are the best way to get it. Wonderful. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, man. This has been this has been a really good conversation. Um, I got to meet you at the Bull Gathering, so I, I kind of knew it was in store, but I just love diving deeper into this costly love idea and um, just about the the hope I have for for continued dialogue. Your your testimony of just how you've been transformed by by uh, 
that love is it's great it's great to hear and i appreciate uh having you on for it it's a joy thank you yeah well john we we always sign off our podcast in the same way you're probably familiar with now we sign off by saying the name of our show to hell with the hot dish and what we mean by that is we are we are over uh uh, just living into the cliche casserole culture of the church that we want to live authentic vibrant lives of faith uh there's times i feel guilty about you know sending the hot dish to hell. But, uh, I think there, I think there's, you know, I need to get over my own piety and, uh, and just embrace the fact that, that we want vibrant, authentic lives of faith. And so thank you for bringing your vibrant, authentic life of faith to the show today. Uh, so we invite you into that. If you're so comfortable, Alex, do you want to give it a roll? Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. As always, check out our website. Talk to us on Facebook. If you think this was an awful episode, let us know. If you think it was a great one, same thing. But as always, um, thanks for listening. We love you guys. And to hell with the hot dish. To hell with the hot dish. To hell with the hot dish. There we go.